Coming up on Tech Nation, former Google CEO and Alphabet Executive Chair, Eric Schmidt, along with former Senior Vice President for Products, Jonathan Rosenberg. They join me to talk about how Google works. Then on Tech Nation Health, while there are many treatments for the 25 species of bacteria which cause sepsis, we come up short on timely diagnostics. I speak with John McDonough, the CEO of T2 Biosystems, dedicated to the fast diagnosis of sepsis and new diagnostics in other areas, such as candida and Lyme disease. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. When you see an iPhone or a toaster oven or a building or a car, you know you're looking at technology. But science is harder to see. A test tube, sheet of numbers, chemical formulas? I'm thinking you cannot see science. You might observe a cell dividing or a gorilla giving birth. But what science is, is the truth about what you're observing. It's not the cell or the gorilla, and it's certainly not the test tube or what's in it or the sheets of numbers or the chemical formulae, switching now to Latin. No, these are real, to be sure, but they are not science. Some of these items exist in nature, and some are technology that enables us to understand the science, and others simply remind us that science must be going on somewhere in the vicinity. When you think about it, the essence of science is the collective knowingness of humanity regarding the truth of our world. And the activity of science is to continue this effort to know more and more and more in perpetuity. Of course, science and technology do push each other. Science depends on technology to prove its point. The analytic application on a computer is technology. However, the meaning which it ultimately reveals, that's science. Sometimes a new technology is built, or new information recorded, or a new analysis emerges, and it can unexpectedly turn science on its head. The current thinking in science might say something is impossible, but that idea can implode when staring at the reality of technology, obviously operating away for all to see. And the relationship itself between the two must be recognized. Sometimes we build a technology because science tells us that we can, as in science came to know about our solar system and showed us we could go to the moon. It further told us that we would have to build the technology just this way. But know that this tech-science interdependence is an ongoing constant dynamic. Science doesn't just send an email with the details or phone it in. Neither is there just one meeting between the astrophysicists and the engineering team simply to get the point straight. All must work together or it might not work at all. I've begun to wonder about the distance between science and technology. How close are they? Or are they close at all? Think of the iPhone. 
it's a long way from the science which enabled it. But not everything is. Think of that moment when we suddenly understand something scientifically. And that knowledge can be immediately incorporated into technical design. For example, there was the famous, if mythical, experiment of Galileo Galilei in the 16th century, purportedly dropping two spheres, two balls, if you will, of the same size, but made of two different materials from the Tower of Pisa. It showed that they dropped at the same speed, even though one weighed more than the other. There's no record that Galileo actually did this, but if he had, he would have gotten the same result. But the point is that the moment science revealed this truth, it could be incorporated into the design of a new technology. So science and technology can be just that close, suddenly known and immediately incorporated, or they can be far, far away, as in the case of the iPhone, or a toaster oven, or a building, or a car. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. Five Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Five Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, former Google CEO and Alphabet Executive Chair Eric Schmidt and former Senior Vice President for Products Jonathan Rosenberg. They tell us how Google works. Then on Tech Nation Health, John McDonough, the CEO of T2 Biosystems, tells us about their efforts toward the timely diagnosis of sepsis, candida, and Lyme disease. I commented to Eric Schmidt and Jonathan Rosenberg that it's in the nature of business books to say, this is how we did it, and or this is how you do it. But they're very direct. They tell you, think big. I asked them, what comprises thinking big? You know, when I look at our career and what Google has done, the first 25,000 employees went really well. But at some point, we had to come up with a new organizing principle. So in the book, we talk about organizing around the people with the biggest impact. So in Google's case, we actually converted ourselves to Alphabet and took the people with the biggest impact and made them CEOs. And the rest is history. When I asked the founders when they originally published uh, the blog on Alphabet what they meant by Alphabet being about getting more ambitious things done, they immediately replied, well, we mean both of the things that says, meaning we want to get more ambitious things done and th meaning additional ambitious things and lots of things that are even more ambitious. And if you think about big, I guess this metric I would have is a billion users, right? We've got search, Android, Chrome, Gmail, Play, Maps, YouTube. YouTube. We've got seven products with a billion users. That's big. When I worked at NASA, we had always solved problems that had never been solved before. But that never spoke to big. That, you know, you could be small. 
It could be anything. So the kinds of things you're saying in your book really, you know, speak to people about what they're attempting to do. Like, don't follow the competition. We always say that you should have 10 times better ideas, not 10% better, which we call moonshots. And indeed, under Alphabet, we've created a group called X or Google X, which is intended to, shall we say, create seeds of these moonshots. And it's worked well so far. Look at Waymo, which is our self-driving car company. Look at Google Brain, which is the power of our artificial intelligence inside the company. All of those came out of that think big mantra. The Google X teams tends to think about it as very large problems that can be solved with breakthrough technology that affect millions of people. And their mantra is to look for projects that fit all three of those criteria. You talk a lot about looking for the people. I mean, who are smart creatives? Smart creatives are typically people who are technical, they're business savvy, they're creative as in the title, they're passionate, they want to focus on a clear mission, and most importantly, as we write about in the book, they don't want to be hemmed in, they don't want to be overplanned, they don't want to be told what to do. So the job of management in the world of a smart creative changes. And rather than top-down management where you're telling them what to do, you're managing the environment in which they work. And more importantly, you're managing the goal-setting process, the objectives and the key results that you want to give them, and then letting them figure out how to deliver. I would say that universities are doing a particularly good job now of creating these smart creatives. This generation of young people graduating are better exposed to projects and working as teams and trying new solutions than our generation. I was actually going to ask the question, are you born one or can you become one? And if I look at the people who are graduating from college today, their great-grandfathers, you know, they they were happy as clams if they got a profession and worked it for 35, 40 years. And it's like, wait a minute, these people have to be prepared for change and to embrace change in a very proactive way. There are plenty of people who are genetically just not interested in doing anything particularly dramatic, but there's also lots of people who respond to the stimuli that today you can be connected, you can learn everything as a teenager. Our young people, especially at our top universities, are far better, right? far better educated, far better prepared than any of our generation was. From my perspective, the sooner we can put them in charge, the better. They also apparently don't use the P word, passion. I guess everybody comes in and says, I'm really passionate. I think you want to test for passion by making people prove that passion to you. So, you know, we had a picture uh, in the original, one of the cartoons when we launched How Google Works of a guy that says, I'm passionate about skiing. And then there was a guy right next to him that said, I'm passionate about skiing, and he was wearing crutches from having just been in a skiing accident. <laughs> so I think one of the things that you want to do is ask people to go into some depth about some of these things and then ask them how their passion evolved. Somebody can tell you that they started stamp collecting when they were a kid and they're passionate about stamps, but then you ask them, well, what did you do differently after your first five years? And then you find out whether or not they're really passionate at the thing that they've been speaking about. It's easy nowadays to fake these things. You know, you read on Wikipedia and you sound like an expert. So as part of your interviewing process, you want to make sure that you're dealing with the real deal. So when you interview somebody, you simply say, 
Tell us about something that you did that you're very proud of and tell us how you approached it and see if there was real insight, if they really did something extraordinary or were they simply following the rules and being boring. Well, Jonathan, you write about your interview at Google with Sergey in, in 2000. You were at, at Excited Home. We remember that. And Sergey asked you to teach him something complicated he doesn't know. And you dive into this whiteboard explanation of an economic principle. It's complicated. But the problem was, for him, it was boring. It wasn't interesting. What's the difference? That particular example was a mediocre example because I was actually basically using first-year college calculus to prove an economic rule uh, about uh, total cost functions and marginal cost and average cost, and Sergey was rightly very quickly bored. I then transitioned the conversation into a talk about courtship, which he found very interesting. <laughs> I think that the difference is that Something complicated that can just be derived mastering basic economics or math or physics isn't particularly interesting. A problem that two people can engage on and debate with each other really is interesting because then you can see how the other person thinks. It's not particularly interesting to explain to somebody how Isaac Newton thought and wrote down a principle. All that shows is that you can master some math or some science. One of the things that we push very hard in our book is to ask the hardest questions. Um, many, many businesses are sitting around in business models that are old or with assumptions that are not necessarily true anymore or difficult to prove. So if you ask the really hard question, where will we be in five years? Will our advantage continue? How will we compete as our competitor gets more funding? These kinds of questions. Those become the interesting business conversations. I find most of the traditional business analysis pretty boring. The questions are pretty simple and the answers are pretty obvious. But great success comes from insight, cleverness, new ways of solving problems that had not been invented before. There's the value add. And in fact, Eric, you write uh, in a small section about uh, notes from a strategy meeting. Uh, I started thinking about the terms and concepts popular today in current management speak, as we call it, uh, pivot, uh, lean startup thinking, all this kind of thing. What do you think of those kind of terms and other current management trends and their potential contribution in original thinking in strategy? Those are all marketing terms trying to build a base of either an audience or some – and they're all fine. They make people feel better. But the great, great businesses can forecast where they'll be, what their competitors are going to do, and they're based on some product or technological insight. In our case, we focus on building great technologies and letting the technology take us to a solution. We try to invent solutions to problems that you didn't even know you had. And that's how you really get business advantage. That's how you really change the world. You're really ahead of the game. What about the famous, we work eight hours a week, each of us get to work eight hours a week on our own projects or a, a Google project? Has that stuck? It's interesting. We write in the How Alphabet Works chapter that we were in New York when we originally went on the book tour for the book. And one of the engineers came and said, well, you should have called the book How Google Worked. I don't get to do 20% time. And we looked into that, and it turned out there were some managers that were somewhat imperial, imperial and precluded people from doing 20% time. But 20% time is still alive and well at Google. People use it differently. 
Some people use it one day a week. Some people will take several weeks together and lump time to do a prototype and actually build something so that they can then show it to their colleagues or peers and see if they can get other people interested in it. So it's still a core principle within the company. It's just used differently by different teams at different times. It's interesting that you use the term eight hours a day. And we don't even track those numbers. Uh, our biggest <laughs> no, problem, nobody in Silicon Valley knows about an eight-hour yeah. day. I just sort of yeah, put that it's out interesting. There. <laughs> it's interesting that uh, our biggest problem is we can't get our employees to take vacations, and indeed, we we give them vacation accrual as any company does, and they don't do it. And so last year, we actually had to have a whole program to encourage people to take vacation and turn off their digital devices. And we actually told them to stop responding to their work email while they were on vacation because we found through lots and lots of studies that if people took a proper vacation, they came back with far more energy. So I think our problem is the inverse. It's burnout, too much going on, too much stimulation, and we want our employees to be around for a long time. Still, you had all this creative time that most people don't plan. In fact, Paul Onolini, uh, who who's been on your board for a long time, said, "Gee, when he first heard about that, he really had a had kind of a hard time adjusting to. Aren't we all supposed to be doing the job here? But it's paid off, right?" Well, I think that in software, because it's so easy to create new things, you want to have an an industrial structure which encourages creativity and experimentation and failure. It may very well be that in chip design business or building buildings, you don't really want the building to fall down. So you don't really want to accept that kind of a failure. But in software, it's pretty easy to have small teams try outlandish ideas, and some of them work and some of them don't. Some of them are okay ideas. And it is that culture of experimentation that I think defines the future of American business and perhaps globally. Because all products are now essentially software-centric, and the way you approach software will then determine how successful your product is. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn. My guests today are Google Executive Chairman and former Google CEO Eric Schmidt and former Senior Vice President for Products Jonathan Rosenberg. They're here today with How Google Works. Well, we're coming up on April 17th as of this interview, and on April 17th in the year 2000, 17 years ago, uh, that was the last time someone from Google came into my studio to tell me how Google works. And obviously, it was Larry and Sergey, and it was really interesting. Um, they were booked by a young freelance PR guy by the name of David Crane. I think you know him. He's now the CEO of uh, Google Ventures. And it was funny because uh, he called me up. And in those days, you booked by calling people. You had to talk to people on the phone. And he said, Moira, Moira, you got to help me. And I said, what? And he goes, I don't care if you air these guys. We just got to book them. And I said, why? And he goes, nobody will talk to them. And I said, why? What's wrong? And he said, they're computer science majors. And I said, I love computer science majors. So we booked them. And it was really great. They showed up. They showed up as if uh, David and I have laughed about this since then. They showed up all dressed up. In their one had a suit. Uh, Sergey had a suit with a you know, with a hole in the sleeve, and and Larry had sort of a Las Vegas type sport coat, and it was just a wonderful, wonderful interview. And then we were, I was asking them about this Google 
you know, tell us about this Google. And they're saying, well, it's like 2001, you know, that movie, Space Odyssey, you know, where you ask Hal and Hal tells you the answers. And uh, I said, oh, that's really great. And so when we got to the end, I said, hey, come back and next year, come back, tell me how this Google thing is going and, and bring Google with you and we'll ask it a couple of questions. Because I had never used Google before. There were already three post-IPO search engines. You know, why would you need Google? And so I said, well, thanks for coming, as I, as I said. And then I, I looked down to do the outro. and All of a sudden, Sergey says, except like Hal, it won't try to kill you. <laughs> And I look into the engineer's booth, and here's David with his head in his hands. It's like, this was really a great interview. So we still have that interview. We love that interview. It's one of our precious ones. So we know you guys come to see us every 17 years, whether we need it or not. And I just want to kind of get this arc of what's happened since then. Then they were just trying to get Google going. And what happens with, dare I use the term mature, what happens with mature and successful companies is that we get lots of multiple efforts, products, services, all those things happening. And then at some point, they're all in different directions. You can't continue successfully in just one company. And out of that, I guess that's where Alphabet was born and the structures? That's right. Uh Jonathan and I have both been in the corporation for more than 15, 16 years. And the first five or so years was establishing what Google was, Google Search, Google Advertising, getting Gmail out, getting Chrome started that. The next five years, if you will, was growing into a large corporation, a corporation of, shall we say, 20, 25,000 people, global operations, all sorts of political and scale issues and massive infrastructure that was built. And at some point, the company realized that it wanted to do more things, largely because the founders had always wanted to work on things like libraries and self-driving cars. Sergey had a special interest in health and health technology. There's an interesting story that in uh, 2014, we had an executive offsite. And in this executive offsite, there were maybe 100 executives. And they looked at what was on the agenda, and the agenda was all the new stuff. But all the executives were for search and ads and the traditional businesses. And people date that meeting to the date when Alphabet began. And Larry and others, but particularly Larry, said, how could we structure for the next phase of growth? Jonathan says very clearly that you should organize around the people whose impact is highest. So the simplest thing that we did was we took the people whose impact was highest and made them CEOs of these initiatives. I think it's also important to remember that for any big company, and Google's not immune to this, new things look small relative to the existing business. So when somebody has an idea and wants to invent something that's new, everyone says, well, let's look at the existing revenue stream it's going to cannibalize. Let's look at our existing products. And they tend not to be interested in the new things. They tend to be interested in the things that got the business successful to date. And in high tech and in software, where technology is moving so quickly, if you're not betting on a new trend, you're going to fall victim to it very quickly. And you need to set up a structure so that those new things are very attractive and people can get new things off the ground without being encumbered by the larger process of the big company. So we've known forever that you not only had to focus on your core business, but you also had to build new businesses. 
I think Alphabet's greatest success will be to illustrate for large companies how to get both done. The interesting surprise about Alphabet, I knew Alphabet would create successful small companies like Waymo, like Verily, and so forth that are going to transform those industries. But what I did not expect was the improvement in focus on Google that has resulted in excellent execution in Google in the last few years. So you sort of won it all. You got a stronger Google and you got these new initiatives with strong leaders. You couldn't have had perfect execution on this. What were some of the things you learned as you were doing it? Well, you don't want to expect perfect execution. And one of the things that we've learned in our whole objective and key result setting process is to model setting objectives that are actually unrealistic so that executives show their teams that they're failing against things and it's okay to fail. And I think that many of the processes that were needed from a reporting standpoint, from a management standpoint, when we announced Alphabet, we hadn't actually completely thought through. It was a pretty bold move by the founders that in August of 2015, we made the announcement. And as we write about in the chapter, they hadn't really dotted all the I's and crossed the T's on every FAQ that needed to be answered so that we could tell employees how processes would work, how people would transfer to one company, how people would come back. We basically decided we wanted to do this and did it. And that created some bumps along the road, but I think in the end that probably allowed us to get to where we are today much faster. It took at least a year after we announced it to actually implement it. And only Google would announce something without any detailed plans and just implement it. You were saying, Eric, that, um, you know, after 25,000 employees, you know, things things got a little tougher to manage, you know, and maybe that is the number. Maybe that's the exact number. Uh, but the whole idea that we've heard forever about hire people smarter than you, I've, I've always heard this. Uh, we always have lots of smart people around, but I think what's most palpable is when you see someone who hires people who are not as smart as they are or equally smart and never smarter, cannot be smarter. And many of those people are their friends. Do you still see that? Is that possible within all of these great processes and 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 methods that you've developed in Google? Well, in the early years, I remember sitting around with Larry and Sergey, and we were chatting about this problem because it seemed to me that we were hiring, but we were hiring people's friends. And so they said, well, why don't we think about this the way universities do it? Why don't we use a hiring committee? Why don't we have a hiring packet? And in fact, radically, when we hired engineers, we would not even tell them who they would work for. We would just hire them en masse, if you will, to work on interesting projects, and it worked. Typically, I like to say, There's that old expression that A's hire B's and B's hire C's, but my corollary is A's can be taught and forced to only hire A's. And if you're a manager and you know you're going to be judged by the sum of what the people who work for you produce, then you're going to be properly incented to continue to hire great people. I'm speaking with Eric Schmidt and Jonathan Rosenberg, the co-authors of How Google Works. I should also mention that the problem they bring up about how to get employees off of email during vacations? Next week, my guest Adam Alter tells us how Mercedes-Benz did just that.
In the meantime, Eric, Jonathan, and I will talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation, Biotech Nation, and Tech Nation Health are available at iTunes, Stitcher, and other podcast syndication outlets. Coming up in the second half of our show on Tech Nation Health, John McDonough, the CEO of T2 Biosystems, talks about their efforts in timely diagnostics from sepsis to candida to Lyme disease. Stay with us. Listening to Tech Nation. I'm speaking with Google Executive Chairman and former Google CEO Eric Schmidt and former Senior Vice President for Products Jonathan Rosenberg. They're here today with How Google Works. There's that old expression that A's hire B's and B's hire C's, but my corollary is A's can be taught and forced to only hire A's. And If you're a manager and you know you're going to be judged by the sum of what the people who work for you produce, then you're going to be properly incented to continue to hire great people. And the A's that get that can be trained to hire correctly. Of course, they can't hire friends because that process is delegated to the committees. But it's very difficult once you start letting, as we used to call it, the bozo invasion get into the company. Once you've got managers who are kind of B-quality people or C-quality people, It's very hard to get them to adopt that A notion that they should hire people who are smarter than they are. You know, it's interesting. We've talked to a lot of companies since the hardcover of our book came out. And what gets the most interest is not strategy or technology, but in fact hiring. And think about it. Most companies have 5% or so of their employees turn over every year because of attrition. People get fired. People get new jobs. uh, People retire, that sort of thing. And yet almost none of them use modern hiring practices that can produce higher quality entry-level workers. There's a couple of things to be said here that that kind of dovetail with what you've already talked about. You've talked about teams. Now we're talking about hiring. And the truth is, is that if you start getting these B's and C's people in here, that the A's get very upset 
they don't do well, and they're not operating. It's like you lose your A's. And uh, and at the end of the day, if you really want to be you know, creative and make things happen. A's are very happy with A's, even if there is tension and interplay and disagreement, because you're really operating at your highest levels. Well, you know, I, I used to think that the way corporations would work is that everyone would be sort of calm and collected and so forth. That's not actually the best way to produce outcomes. You want active, dynamic, almost yelling, although I don't mean real yelling, but tension and people pushing and advocating and passion around ideas and so forth and so on. And those kind of people, the smart creatives that we identify, are who should be running the company. And they should be running it for positions of authority, organized around the people whose impact is the best. And my experience is that if you organize that way, it becomes clear who your leaders are. And then you should adopt modern hiring principles for everybody else, right? And over time, it becomes clear who the movers and shakers are. Speaking as now an older executive, it's always a shock to find younger people who are smarter, more capable, and more brilliant than you are now or ever were. And that's just a fact of life, so get over it. And you might as well hire them. People often ask about innovation, and I think they think that it can be mandated and directed and in fact, what you find is loosely bonded teams and groups collaborating with each other is the secret to innovation. And having people who are superstars, not having people who are bees, is the kind of dynamic where two people show up in the cafeteria and sit down and are interested in talking to each other because they expect to learn something. So you're looking for those kind of passionate people who sit down and want to understand what's this guy in ad systems working on? I'm working on search but I'm going to talk to him. And the company is really about managing and forcing that cycle in as many places as it can with brilliant people. But going back to this smart creative notion, how would a smart creative like to be managed? Any such person would want the most amount of information that you can possibly get to them. So they are the best prepared to serve the shareholders in whatever role they want. So we practice and encourage maximum sharing. Most companies don't do that. We insist on Think 10 times, not 10%. Wouldn't you be more interested in a conversation where we ask you to imagine to change the entire zeitgeist, to change the entire discussion? How would you do that? You're going to be much more passionate about that. And Hey, let's just make the screws and the rivets just a little bit tighter. Be much more interesting. You'll get a better performing organization if you ask people questions and you treat them with respect. Can a C become a B? Can a B become an A? Um, there are obviously some limits, but I think most employees would perform much better if they worked in environments where they were treated with respect, they were asked their opinion, they were given ownership of outcomes, and they were given freedom to do their best. Over and over again, we've seen in the business literature that the more you have contests and innovation contests and you encourage people's ideas and you actually listen to them, you get a better outcome. This seems so obvious to me, I feel like shouting it. <laughs> you, can teach, you can teach most smart people how to manage. And many Google engineers choose to learn how to manage, even though at the outset they, were not, they, they would not have been great managers. What's difficult to teach is cognitive ability. If you have someone who's a C because he or she is not smart, it's difficult to make them a B or an A. But if you have someone who isn't a great manager but is very, very smart, you can often teach them management. 
And if they're very smart, but they are used to being a loner, can you teach them to become part of a team, even lead a team? I think that's often a mistake. I think you often find that companies take the best scientist or the best engineer and put that person in a senior management position when they're better suited for more of an individual contributor position. The problem is that most companies only pay on the basis of the number of people under someone's purview. So if you're going to maximize the value for your company and keep generating the technical insights that we talk about, you want a path for engineers and scientists within an organization that allows them to get paid a lot more, even if they don't have people working for them. In our book, we talk about competitive advantage. And we argue that today, because distribution networks are widely available and it's easy to raise money, and because of the internet, you can reach everybody in the world, the only real differentiator for a corporation is technological and product excellence. In other words, focus on the products. And that the chief executive officer has to be focused on building fantastic products. So however those are built and however that excellence is achieved, the compensation seems need to respect that. It's far more important to invent a product that changes the world and brings in billions of dollars than it is to worry about the salesperson's compensation or the finance person's compensation that are relatively fungible. Uh, Eric, you write, uh, get input from everyone in the room. Okay, who should you deliberately invite into the room? Because an easy way to have everyone agree with you is just to invite people who do. My personal preference is always to have a larger meeting and more people. Even if people are on the periphery, having people watch how a decision gets made really allows them to have greater buy-in. So that's my own preference. Other people have uh, different styles. The thing I've noticed about meetings is it's a pretty straightforward dynamic. Uh, in the tech world, you have a majority of men and a minority of women. Uh, there's a out of the men, half the men will be all, the ones that do all the talking. So every meeting starts with all the men who normally talk talking. You as an executive have to stop long enough to ask the woman to speak by asking her a question or what have you. And she'll typically give an answer which is far more thoughtful, far more interesting than any of the men. And if you can then get a conversation going on where everyone's voice is heard and you make sure that even the men that never ask questions and the women who would not necessarily speak up or where the man would over overspeak the woman say, let her speak. If you just say, let her speak and hear her, you get a much better outcome because everyone participates in the conversation. And I cannot emphasize enough that a proper functioning culture is inclusive and diverse and that you get better products as a result of this technique. You also want to make sure that you have the person low on the totem pole who actually knows the data. And the difference between meetings today and meetings in the past are that most of the data that you want is probably data that you have on your own servers about your own company, about your own customers, about your own website. It used to be that executives would get in a room and they would have read some external report and then they would sit around and talk about the implications of that external report. Today, since you actually have the facts within your company, you want to make sure that the person who can actually surface those facts as expeditiously as possible when the meeting starts is there. I remember one case a few years ago. We were with a very important distribution partner, a big advertiser, the chief executive officer, and myself, and all the executives. 
And these are relatively staged meetings in the sense of, hello, how are you? What are your issues? Good partner and so forth. And a few minutes into it, a woman who looked like she was right out of college started speaking. And she, to me, looked like, why was she even there? She was so junior. And I forced myself to shut up. And I realized that she understood the relationship, the money, the partnership at a level of detail that no other individual in the room. And I kept saying to myself, don't interrupt her, Eric. Let her speak. Let her be heard. And, of course, it became a great partnership. Uh, When I traveled to Europe, for instance, everyone hates to have laptops in the room. When you go to San Francisco, lots of people don't like to have laptops at meetings. I go to Silicon Valley. Everybody's got a laptop in front of them. Where are you on this? Where are you on technology and meetings? This was actually a great debate. Um, And when I started, which was more than 15 years ago, we decided to have, because everyone was on their computers all day, we would ask that people stay off their computers for 60 minutes per week, which was the 60 minutes of my meeting. And there was a financial penalty of a nominal $10 if you even typed on what at the time were Blackberries. And my idea was that this one hour, right, per week, that people could get away from their obsession long enough to actually look at each other and to look in the eye and build a team and build a consensus. After a decade of that meeting structure, we decided that it was too uh, prohibitive of the executives. And you can now use, even in that 60-minute meeting, you can spend all your time looking at screens and not looking at each other. That's how strong the addiction is. I'd put it a different way. I think Eric and I both feel strongly on this issue. Laptops and phones don't belong in meetings. I don't think they belong in college lecture halls. But but, But but it's a battle that we lost. Jonathan, we lost it, and we lost it big time. I mean, if you can't even get off your stuff for an hour a week, what's wrong with you? Well, the answer is... Nevertheless, we lost. I come down on Jonathan's side. It's like we can do a lot of multiprocessing, but I can tell you I'll be talking and I'll see I'll see these you know, very mature people have very good jobs and all of a sudden they look, they're fading out and they come back. They literally can't record. We have to fund some science here to show that neuroscientifically we can only do certain tasks together. And there's a great deal of evidence. There's a great deal of evidence that proves that, that you, Jonathan and I are correct. But everyone just ignores it. They ignore me so much that even though I have a simple technological solution for this in the classroom, which is a simple app, each student needs to be logged in. And on the professor's PowerPoint up in the upper left corner, every five minutes or so randomly, a student's name and the screenshot of what the student is doing comes up. Transparency would solve the problem, and I've been advocating this for years, and no one is listening. <laughs> no, no. That is a really – that is a frightening app. But, but I love it. If if the Google executive chairman can't get anybody to listen, who can? So it is a human, human trait that we have. Well, given the continuous and, shall we say, era-defining success of Google, you write on the last page – no business wins forever. It is inevitable. Maybe we should think about the success arc of businesses. In writing the foreword for out the alphabet portion of this paperback, we thought a lot about when will we write another one. 
And I think it's fair to say that Alphabet is just another phase of this and that there will be something after Alphabet that we don't know yet, perhaps in five years or 10 years, that modern corporate structures at this level should be innovative at the structural level. So it looks to me like Alphabet's going to be a huge success. And whenever you have a huge success, you also then sow the seeds for some future set of problems. Now, can we agree that I'll see someone from Alphabet in another 17 years, 2034, to fill me in on how things are going? We agree. And since 17 is a prime, we'll be happy to visit with you on other prime number years. Oh, you guys are great. <laughs> hey, come back anytime. We're really glad to have you in. We'll come the next Pi Day. March 14th. <laughs> you got it. You got it. Eric and Jonathan, thank you so much. My guests today are Google Executive Chairman Eric Schmidt and former Senior Vice President for Products Jonathan Rosenberg. They're here today with How Google Works. Now out in paperback, it's published by Grand Central Publishing. You're listening to Tech Nation. Welcome to Tech Nation Health, reimagining the future of health and healthcare with the emergence of new technologies. Muhammad Ali suffered for many years from Parkinson's, and yet he ultimately succumbed to sepsis. I asked John McDonough, CEO of T2 Biosystems, what is sepsis? Well, sepsis is a, a state, an infectious disease of either bacteria or fungus that actually gets into a patient's bloodstream. Uh, the immune system will then respond to that infection, and that immune response can often start to affect the functions of the body and ultimately lead to the death of the patient. Uh, there are about 2 million patients a year in the United States that will have sepsis as, as a whole. It has about a 30% mortality rate. Uh, almost 50% of deaths in U.S. hospitals each year are actually from sepsis. It's really a silent killer. You know, pe people are very familiar with, with, with cancer and AIDS and, you know, other uh, significant ailments that, that ultimately can lead to the death of patients. But what people don't know is that among cancer patients, for example, about 25% of the deaths are actually from sepsis, you know, not from the cancer itself. And I would suspect that in the case of Muhammad Ali, he was suffering other ailments, of course, uh, which, which we've read about. Uh, I would guess that his immune system was compromised and, and he picked up an infection and, and that ultimately uh, sepsis led, unfortunately, to his passing. Well, part of the problem is diagnosis. You've got to know that that's what you have. That's exactly right. So the really good news with sepsis, uh, unlike many other diseases like cancer, is, is that there are great drugs available to treat patients. The problem is, is that there's over 100 drugs available to treat patients. So these different infectious diseases, the fungal infections, are typically caused by one of five different species. The bacterial infections are often caused by one of 20 to 25 different species. If you know the species of the infection, then there's a drug that matches up against it. 
And if you can get that diagnostic data fast enough, the data has shown that you can take that 30% mortality rate all the way down to about 10% if you could treat patients within 12 hours. The, the problem uh, prior to the T2 product entering the market is that all of these infections are detected using a blood culture. Very similar to, to throat cultures. We've probably all had sore throats, and you, know, you go into the doctor's office, and they do a culture. They send it to a lab. What they're doing is they're, they're growing the cells to see if anything is growing. And, and the reason why they follow that approach with sepsis is that the typical patient will have one to ten cells per milliliter of blood in their bloodstream. So it's just a really low, low cell count. And there's been no diagnostic method that can detect all the way down at one cell. So they grow the cells until there's enough cells there to detect. The problem is that takes one to five days. Uh, what T2 is able to do. You miss the do, window. You miss the window. And every hour that you delay getting to the right drug, the right therapy, mortality is increasing by 7 to 8%. So it's a huge opportunity to bring that mortality rate down by getting a diagnostic to identify the species faster. And what, what we do at T2 is we take the blood. We're the only product in the market that can actually go directly from blood without the need for blood culture. We get that diagnostic test result in as fast as three hours. And our accuracy is actually also better than blood culture. We detect over 96% of infections uh, where blood culture is typically detecting 50 to 60% of the infections because sometimes the cells don't grow. There are various reasons why that might be the case. But if the cells don't grow, you get a false negative test result, and, and, and that's a real problem for the patient. The fungal part, the candida part, you're not just getting that in the hospital. People have these candida infections for all kinds of reasons. You do have a T2 candida diagnostic, right? We do. Uh, so T2 candida was the first product that got FDA cleared uh, back at the end of 2014. Uh, we've rolled that product out very excitingly. Uh, we have over 35 hospitals now adopting and using that diagnostic test panel. Uh, we're actually uh, actively testing patients in five different countries as well. Uh, and the candida panel is detecting the fungal pathogens associated with sepsis that have the highest mortality rate. That's why we started there. The mortality rate for these candida infections today is 40%. The most exciting time, honestly, that, that, that I've personally experienced has been over the last six months as these hospitals have gone live and testing patients we have just Saving so many success lives. stories of patients that we're detecting that were missed. We're seeing a reduction in the use of drugs on patients who don't need it. So what, what, what happens today is while you're waiting for that blood culture result, patients are being blasted with drugs. It's a guessing game because you want to try something because you know the patient is sick. And, of course, that's leading to all sorts of resistance and susceptibility where the drugs don't work. Uh, and it's also a significant cost to the healthcare system that, in, in the end, is unnecessary if you could have a diagnostic that uh, can solve that real problem. Now, T2 bacteria, that test, how many of the 25 different species is it able to identify? Yeah, so the T2 bacteria test will identify six of those species, and those six are the ones that typically are not covered when a patient gets blasted with drugs. So the really good news is as T2 bacteria gets FDA clearance, which we expect uh, in 2017, and you combine that with T2 Canada and the use of broad-spectrum antibiotics, which is what typically is used today, 
that should cover about 95% of septic patients, enabling 95% of those 2 million patients to be put on the right drug within the first six or so hours. As important as this is, there's another test that you have that really strikes me as well, and it's T2 Lyme. Let's talk about Lyme disease and how prevalent it is. Now, Lyme disease is a big problem. Uh, the CDC estimates that there are about 360,000 cases of Lyme disease on an annual basis just in the United States, and yet only 36,000 actually 10%. get treated, 10%. And the problem with Lyme disease is that if it goes untreated beyond the typically the first 30-day window with, with an anti, the right antibiotic, that can turn into long-term cognitive and neurological issues for patients, and that can go on for months or years. It's, there, are, there are many cases and there are many really supportive advocacy groups uh, that exist in the United States because these patients are oftentimes out of work. They're not able to get compensated for that disability because, well, it never got detected, right? So they, you, you never really know, was it Lyme disease or are these patients not working for some other reason? Um, it, it's a big unmet need. Um, and uh, Lyme disease is very similar to sepsis, ironically, in that it's caused by bacteria entering the bloodstream. Uh, but in this case, that bacteria comes from a tick bite. Uh, and when that bacteria gets into the bloodstream, it, it becomes a real problem and inflammation and, and it turns into these long-term issues. The difference between the bacteria associated with a tick bite and sepsis is that it doesn't grow. So blood culture doesn't work. They don't use blood culture. I think there's one or two labs in the U.S. that try to do that and, and, and it, it just doesn't work. The bacteria doesn't grow. So what they measure instead are different diagnostic tests that's measuring your immune response. And problem with that is twofold. One is the immune system is typically responding more than 30 days after the infection, so it's too late. And secondly, your immune system, if it is responding, could be responding to one of many things, of which Lyme disease would be one. Uh, you know, I'll give you an example. Uh, about two years ago, uh, my wife clearly had some kind of a bite on the back of her leg. It was swelling. It was becoming problematic. She went to the doctor. They tried this. They tried that. It turned out in her case, she didn't have Lyme disease at all, uh, even though there was an immune response. But she did have a spider bite, right, a, a different type of infection. But it was a complete guessing game. Fortunately for her, not Lyme disease because if it had been, it's quite likely that she would have been treated well outside the, the, the key window of, of treating patients. Yeah, it's, it's the not knowing. It's the rooting around for all these things. That, uh, that, that's where we're going here. If you can get the, the test right away. How long does your Lyme disease test take? takes about three hours um, and uh, very similar to, to our sepsis product. Very simple to use. Uh, you simply take a tube of blood and you load it into an instrument that we provide uh, to a hospital and uh, the result is provided within three hours. Okay, everybody wants to know, if it says T2, how come the tests are so fast? <laughs> that's the secret that's a, that's what's the magic <laughs> well so the, the the magic to 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 what we do is it's it's a novel and really breakthrough diagnostic detection method uh, that we've created uh, this technology comes comes out of our founders labs at mit and mass general hospital 
And the technology, which is now supported by 50 issued patents in the United States and another 50 that are going through the various patent offices, uh, it is a combination of advances in the field of magnetic resonance and advances in the field of nanotechnology that we've brought together into one diagnostic detection method. And so what we measure are the magnetic properties of water that's in a sample, in this case, blood. But this diagnostic detector could be applied to really anything. And there's over 100 scientific publications related to this technology showing you know, our ability to detect proteins and small molecules and DNA and all they these all different things. They all have signatures. Things. They all have signatures and we can detect it. And because of the method we use, we can detect directly in the sample instead of having to process the sample. And that's what gives us this ability to detect all the way down at one cell. And it's what gives us the ability to do it so fast. Now, magnetic resonance or MRI or whatever you want to call it, these are usually huge machines. How big is your machine? Yeah, so our detector, you know, when you think of an MRI machine, you think of, you know, conference room table and something going up to the, <laughs> the, control to the ceiling. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. No, in our case, the magnet's about four inches in diameter. So it's a pretty simple magnet. It doesn't require any special shielding or all the things that go into these very large magnets. And the reason why we can shrink this magnet size down and make it so simple is that we are using, you know, this nanotechnology to essentially make the signal stronger for us to be able to detect. So it's smaller than a bread box. Smaller than a bread box. So if you don't like the name T2 Biosystems, you could become bread box diagnostics. I like it. I think you're onto something. Giving it to you for free, John. No worries. (laughs) Hey, John, thank you so much. Please come back. Keep us updated, won't you? Thank you very much. Really enjoyed it. John McDonough is the CEO of T2 Biosystems. More information is available at t2biosystems.com. For Tech Nation Health, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt.